Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to artists and authors about the research that influenced their works. This week, we're offering you a sneak peek at the New Scientist Book Club, which read Naomi Alderman's newest book, The Future, last month. In The Future, billionaires escape a world-shaking cataclysm by fleeing to secret bunkers. At least, that's how it starts. But much like Alderman's previous book, The Power, the story doesn't quite go as you think it might. The tale unfolds across time and civilization in truly epic fashion. And those billionaires? They may not be as in charge of events as they think they are. Allison Flood interviewed Alderman about writing the future, the real mysteries of human evolutionary history, and why she thinks artificial intelligence can't actually predict what's going to happen. Plus how this book was almost a pandemic story. And one quick note, there are a few book spoilers, or at least hints of spoilers, in this interview. But I think you'll find they won't ruin your chances of enjoying the future if you do pick it up down the road. Enjoy. Can you start off by telling us about the future? I've called it an eco-techno thriller. It's a bit of a heist novel as well. But how would you describe it? Yes, well, I sort of usually start by saying the novel begins as three billionaires get an alert to say that the world is ending and they've got to go to their survival bunkers to escape. And then it follows what happens to them, which is not what they expect. Was there something in particular that you read or that sparked you off to tell this story? Yeah, so, um, I mean, certainly at the start of 2017, I read a piece in the New Yorker magazine, which was about technology billionaires building these bunkers. And um, this just really made me think, God, that's evil. That's really, really evil. And I think I wrote a whole book to sort of explain to myself in some ways exactly why it's so bad. One of the major reasons is that if the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world, which arguably those people are, now think that they are going to be able to escape from an apocalypse, that means that they have no incentive to try to make it better for the rest of us. I don't know if you've seen in the news lately. I mean, literally, since the book has been published, it's been announced Mark Zuckerberg is building an enormous escape bunker in Hawaii, which he intends to be totally self-sustaining. So, yeah, it's happening, I'm afraid. I think we all have a bit of an obsession with a fresh start and what it might be like. And I found myself when I was reading the future, desperate to have the world wiped away to see what might happen next. Is that something that you wanted to explore, that wish to start over? Yeah, I mean, look, I've been writing these, I make, I make this a zombie game. And I've been working on that for 
a dozen years at this point. There is something extremely attractive about a fantasy of a world which is new and where we can start again. And of course, uh, Western people have been attracted by that fantasy of like a land without people where we can go and, you know, start a new civilization for quite a long time. And it has ended up with us doing some terrible things (laughs) because if you need a land without people, then you're desperate to be able to say that the people who are there are not really people and so on and so forth. But yes, I think probably fantasy is a good place for that type of instinct. I mean, I don't necessarily believe in evolution psychology. I think that a lot of it is made up just so stories. But I think there's probably something to the idea that we evolved walking from place to place and that it's probably quite natural for us to be wanting a regular fresh start and that that would be a normal part of your life if you were you know, following the different seasons of the year and the bison are here and the salmon are there and so on. So I think increasingly also... Our social organisation has us more and more stuck and fixed. It is very hard these days to lose an identity and gain a new one. You know, 500 years ago, all you would have to do is walk until there was nobody there who knew you anymore, and then you could start again. And that is not the case any longer. And so maybe those fantasies of a fresh start and just... What would it be like if we could just start it? Maybe that becomes more and more and more urgent the less we are allowed to have that in our real lives. Interesting. And I guess you do explore that a lot with your fox and rabbit idea in the novel, right? Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so um, fox is really the hunter-gatherer world that we all come from. We are all descended from hunter-gatherers. There are a few small groups of people still living in the world as hunter-gatherers, and we tend to forget about that. And when we talk about it, we say, oh, you know, this is the distant past. Well, for some people, it still is the present. And rabbit is us, the settled people who do agriculture, who decided to do this crazy thing that still nobody can tell you why we did that. Because for more than 100 generations, which is a really long time, the people who are living that rabbit lifestyle, which I called that because, you know, living in burrows and sort of, you know, in that settled place rather than wandering around in the environment, people who are living that settled lifestyle were doing much, much worse than people who are hunter-gatherers. So settled agriculturalists, babies died more often, they got more diseases, they had lower lifespans. We can look at their bones and see that they were much more malnourished. Why did they keep doing it? Why did they carry on with that? We don't know the answer. Anybody watching this has as good a chance of working it out because, of course, They left no records. There's no writing. We don't know why they did that. There are a lot of theories, and I go through some of the theories in the book. It's one of the biggest, weirdest questions about humanity that we have mostly decided to domesticate ourselves. As far as we know, we're the only animal on this planet to have ever done that. And it's very unclear why we did it. And the Benefits are complex. So, right, at this stage, yes, we have antibiotics and, you know, sterile surgery and we have the ability to do physics and all of these things, which we would not have been able to do if we had been hunter-gatherers. But they can't have known that that was coming. These are sort of side benefits of something else that was going on. What were they doing it for? One theory is that uh, it's called the terror management theory, terror as in fear. So the theory is that 
because we are unfortunately for us creatures who are able to understand that there is a future we wake up every morning terrified and the normal status of all animals is that an animal throws itself on the bounty of the world every morning you know you have your skills whatever it is a sharp beak and good eyesight and very fast snatching claws or whatever it is that will that will enable you to go out into the world every day and find something to eat and make some shelter or create a shelter that you can live in for a while and you don't think to yourself as far as we know pigeons don't sit around thinking to themselves but what am I going to eat a year from now they're they're there in the day right and human beings unfortunately for us can think about the future and so the theory is that this creates such terror in us that we would rather have a field of mouldy corn and three very thin sheep so that we can at least look at it and go, that's where my meal is coming from, than we would to throw ourselves on the bounty of the world around us. Maybe that's why we did it. I, you know, it's it, it's not a brilliant reason, but it strikes me as somewhat convincing. So how did it come to you that all of this would weave together to tell this story of the future? Oh, my God. I really had to throw myself somehow on the bounty of this book. I just I I knew there were a few different scenes that I knew would be in the book. I knew from early on that there was a character at the end who believed that they were potentially anyway, the last person left alive in the world, or at least that they had no way of contacting anybody else. And that image and some early scenes of that character chatting to, to the character's survival suit were in there from really early on. And I thought actually at the start that that might be the beginning of the book is this character there and why on earth have they ended up there. I also knew that there was a woman fleeing from an assassin in a mall in Singapore. And that that was also very early on. I knew those things were linked together. And I sort of had to figure out what the bits in the middle were. Actually, there's something about writing a novel that is like setting yourself a PhD question and then just going off to try and write that PhD without anybody being able to tell you whether that's a good PhD question because <laughs> the only way you find out is by writing it. So, Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So you had all these disparate bits and you thought to yourself, I know what I need to bring them together. The Old Testament. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Sodom was in there quite early on as well. That was, I I didn't know who was telling that story, but because I come from a very religious background and I've read a lot of the Old Testament in Hebrew since I was a small child, the moment that I heard about these billionaires going to their bunkers, I thought of Lot going to his cave. And I thought, do they not know? But this does not go well. That is not a good story. <laughs> so yeah, I I start I didn't know when I was writing it to start off with who was telling that story, but I thought it was vital to get that story in there of what happens. I think when people think about Lot, they know about the wife that looks back and turns to a pillar of salt, but they don't know any of the other things. 
including what happens in the horrible cave. Yeah, I didn't at all. I had to admit that when I first started reading those bits, I was a bit, oh, this is weird. Is this going to work? Where's she going with all of this? And then I ended up absolutely loving them. I thought they were brilliant. It was fascinating. But yeah, it's not the obvious place to go, I guess. No, well, why would we go to the obvious place when we can go to some other interesting places? Yeah, and you even have the pillar of salt in the book. I do. I do have the pillar of salt in the book. Yes, that I feel like that was an early kind of ah link where I was writing the bit about the woman in being chased by the assassin. And then she turned the assassin into a pillar of salt. And I went, OK, it's it's joining up. I don't know how, but it is joining up. Yeah, I think my favourite character of all is Marius, who I just found hilarious, totally brilliant. Tell us a bit more about him and your amazing explanation of machine learning that you give. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, Marius. How did Marius turn up? So I wrote this section with Jen fleeing from the assassin and then having to hide herself all in one go. And it seemed to me that she would need a friend. And when I started writing the friend that he just came out that way. <laughs> Very fierce. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, God knows, my dad is an academic and I've grown up around academics. So I'm perfectly aware of the fierce loyalty of academics who know that they are much cleverer than you are. So, uh, yeah, so Marius explains this real thing, which is in the early 60s, a computer scientist, we would now say a computer scientist called uh, Donald Mitchie, in Edinburgh, created a machine learning tool, which was, it was it, he wanted to prove that a computer, as it were, could learn. And so it's called Menace, the machine educable noughts and crosses engine. And it plays noughts and crosses. How does it do it? Well, it, it, I explain in the book in quite a lot of detail how that set of matchboxes and beads can end up playing noughts and crosses. I do actually remember getting to a point in the book where I knew that I was going to have to explain this and just feeling some kind of despair, thinking, am my readers going to stick with me whilst I explain this to them? <laughs> because I think it's actually very important in order to understand, you know, it's, it's easy to look at computers and think, oh, they're thinking without having an understanding of what is actually going on. So in the simplest possible terms, how the machine educable noughts and crosses engine works is you have a bunch of matchboxes, each one of which represents a different board state in a game of noughts and crosses. Each of them has little coloured beads in, which represent all of the open squares in that board state. B-O-A-R-D, board state. And you shake the matchbox when you get to that board state, when it's the computer's turn, and then it, it doles you out a random bead and that's the that's what you play. All right. So Early on, when you're playing knots and crosses like that, the machine is going to lose a lot. But, aha, uh -huh, this is the clever bit. You know at the end of each game whether the machine has lost that game or won it. You know. The machine doesn't know. And if it has won, you go through and put in an extra bead of the colour for each colour that it used to do that route to winning. And if it's lost, you take out a bead of that colour and you do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And after you've done it about a thousand times, that machine is now very good at playing noughts and crosses. So you start out with some beads and some matchboxes that obviously do not know how to play noughts and crosses. And what happens is you store your understanding of noughts and crosses in the form of those beads and matchboxes. I've explained this to live audiences quite a few times. And, and at the end, everybody just sort of goes... 
oh, is that all it is? And the answer is, yes, that's all it is. It's very clever. It's a very good tool. All it can do at the top of its ability is to be able to reproduce accurately human thinking that has already happened. It's not thinking for itself. It's not a person. And why is this so important to the novel? (laughs) Well, it's important to the plot of the novel because the thing that claims to predict the future in the novel actually does not predict the future. And it turns out at the end that it never worked. It's also important to the plot of the novel because of this very strange human state where we would apparently somehow, we rabbits, uh would apparently rather believe in the sayings of an artificial god that we have created than think for ourselves. This is also rabbity thinking. This is the same reason that we would rather have this meagre field and those starving sheep than to just go out and find every day what is available for us in the world. We would also rather have a set of matchboxes and beads that we have taught to reproduce some elements of our own thinking than we would apparently think for ourselves. So those are some interesting psychological quirks of human beings. And they feel worth knowing, particularly in the world now, where people are claiming that artificial intelligence will do all sorts of amazing things. It's a very useful tool for certain things. It's not a person. Don't ask it for advice. Should we all be a bit more fox then? If we can somehow work out how to be a little bit more fox every day, I think that would be good. Also, fundamentally, if we could stop persecuting indigenous people who are still living in a more fox-like way, and if we could understand that that is how we all evolved and that in fact those lives are incredibly satisfying and to support and care for the places that we still have indigenous people living in some of those very traditional ways I think that would be better for all of us and certainly to seek out the learning and understanding of indigenous peoples because Yeah, they know stuff that we have deliberately forgotten in various different ways. And I don't mean that in a woo type way. I just mean about what it means to live good, fulfilling lives. We are these days living, all of us, in a kind of Fordism, a sort of uh, production line thing where we all do our one job and that's the thing we can do. And we don't do all of the other things that go into making a human life. And I suspect that it makes us much more anxious and much more miserable. And just learning to have a little bit more control over the world around you, whether that be by growing things, sewing things, making things, cooking things, all of those skills that hunter-gatherers would have had to have all of those skills actually do make us feel I think more fulfilled and more happy. I'm interested that you started writing in 2017 way before the pandemic and yet you were still writing a novel about the end of the world. Did the pandemic and writing during it affect the book or change it in any way? Well this book used to start with 50 pages of pandemic When I was writing it in 2017 or certainly by the time I'd figured out what the book was about so probably middle of 2018 uh yes it used to start with a big pandemic because I thought well we haven't had one of those for ages and they're quite exciting and then at the by the end of 2019 as I was sort of finishing off that draft I was thinking oh this thing that's happening in China that's very interesting maybe I can fold that into the novel somehow and then by February 2020 I thought oh 
my book is sunk, sunk without trace. Um, I can't write this. Real people are dying. Real people are really losing loved ones. And certainly, I don't think anybody would really like to read a book with 50 pages of R numbers and, you know, masking mandates and so on anymore. It, it's, it has that funny quality, the pandemic, of being both frightening and boring at the same time. I never knew that living through an actual apocalypse would feel so boring. So, yeah, I sort of junked the book and then found a different way through it and uh, started in a different place. And I'm sorry if my thinking, the thought I thought like, oh, we haven't had a pandemic for ages is what caused it to happen. That certainly wasn't my intention. So what's next for you? What are you writing? Well, currently I'm writing a book about something that has already happened, which is uh, my mother died last year. And I'm writing a book which is somehow both about my mother dying and also about a strange new animal has appeared in the UK. I, I will always put together things that don't seem to go together and find ways to make them go together. Well, they definitely do brilliantly in the future. And thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. That was Alison Flood interviewing Naomi Alderman. If you liked this interview, definitely make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, our weekly news podcast and the delightfully diverting Escape Pod, they all drop right here every Friday and Tuesday. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. I'm Christy Taylor. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.